I'm sitting here with, I got a couple more minutes with Benjamin Lore. We're going to talk about the, the phenomenon that is Trader Joe's, which was the genesis of your book, really. I mean, it's it, it's funny because the book starts out with Trader Joe's, and it's it's clear you did a lot of research on this. Um, why did you, you know, we've talked about it before. You're not a Trader Joe's hater. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to dispute you on that, but you're an agnostic. You're right down the middle. What made you want to write a book on Trader Joe's specifically? Yeah. Uh, well, there was a very proximal like definite cause that got me into Trader Joe's, which is that in my first book, I was researching Bikram yoga and I went to this Bikram yoga teacher training and, you know, and there I'm like, why I have to, I'm trying to figure out why these like very intelligent adults are obsessed with this yoga run by a borderline, not just borderline, sorry, an abusive guru. At that point, I didn't know that he was sexually assaulting people, uh, but I found that out pretty quickly. So not just borderline, I, he felt borderline, but he was, he was a totally abusive guy. Why are these people attracted to it? And so, you know, doing my very immersive thing, I go to the teacher training, do gobs of yoga, studying <clears throat> with them, and they let all the trainees out to go to the grocery store because they've been stuck at this training for nine weeks. And they, the people just crammed into a Trader Joe's with a, like maniacal glee. I have not seen outside of like kids that I'm yeah, yeah. like everyone was so excited about this prospect of a trip to Trader Joe's. The eyes were like wide open and like people were swapping recipes that were just made with Trader Joe's products. And I was like, Holy shit. <laughs> like I didn't grow up with Trader Joe's, but I need to understand what's going on here. Cause it seemed to mimic a lot of the, obsession that I was seeing in the Bikram world and it seemed like a stand-in and then of course I went and I was like wow the employees at this place are so happy the prices here are indeed really low and it has all these foods that are delicious like chocolate dusted almonds oh, you know dark chocolate dusted that, that oh, I'm yeah. like was totally into so I was very won over but I, but there's this voice in my head that was like oh it's too good to be true. Like you get, you need to figure out what, what, what's wrong with this picture. Um, Look at you cynic. So your, your inherent cynical nature. I appreciate that. I have the same cynical nature. Is that what drove you? <laughs> That's what drove me, but you know, it was actually <laughs> wonderful. Um, yeah. You know, so I started interviewing a lot of employees. I connected to old uh, Trader Joe's employees and uh, eventually I got to connect to Trader, to Trader Joe himself, but uh, Joe Cologne, who founded the train back in basically in 1958, he founds a fleet of convenience stores, then turn into Trader Joe's. Uh, and he was a fascinating guy, just wonderful and completely undermined my cynicism <laughs> in that. I think that a lot of the, the innovations in Trader Joe's, and again, it's a word I hate, but I, I think he actually did things differently and he did them better. And that created a store that, especially under his tenure, um, operated with much more of a sense of delight and creativity and higher quality than the, than the other supermarkets of that time. So it was a total pleasure. It started out as Pronto Markets, right? That's the original thing that That's you're... That's right. Yeah. Um, it's funny because the original Trader Joe's is actually right down the street from me. I'm hopefully going to get a picture that I'll put up on my Twitter, my Instagram. Um, you could take a few lessons. Yeah. From, yeah, I'm going to. Everyone listening, be very excited <laughs> about that. Uh, but it's, you know, it's right down the street. I mean, this is you know, kind of a California homegrown thing. Uh, it's just, and, and the book kind of starts out of this interesting place where 
there's, you know, Southland is a company that owns 7-Eleven, and obviously everyone owns a 7-Eleven convenience store. Trader uh, Joe Colomb owns this store called Pronto's, Pronto's Market, and there's a moment in the book that starts this whole chapter out where his supplier of, his dairy supplier is getting bought out, and that's going to be the end of, you know, milk and, uh, and eggs and, uh, for, for him, I believe. And he needs to come up with basically a, a way to, to make to, because essentially what he's looking at is his markets are going to be now in competition with the best and easiest convenience store and largest in the nation, if I'm understanding this correctly. And so he's got, and he's got to reinvent himself. So how does he, how does he exactly do that? What is the, the secret sauce? Yeah, he's faced with this moment, not just that his egg producer is going out of business, but that 7-Eleven is moving in. And he's playing the convenience store game at that point. And 7-Eleven is the best at the convenience store game. So he knows he's toast. And convenience stores are, to this day, uh, a game that's based on real estate. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you, you need the, the, all the items in the convenience stores are basically the same. And so if you're saving money on your real estate, you can offer lower prices. And if you get the best real estate, you're going to get the most foot traffic. Um, and so he knows he's going extinct because he can't compete with 7-Eleven in terms of getting the, the best real estate deals. Um, and he realizes there's, you know, there's a couple options here. He could scale up and attempt to match a company like 7-Eleven or play the grocery game similar to other grocers, which is just bigger is better. Uh, let's try to become the biggest and baddest in the land and get the biggest volume discounts from the suppliers that I can get. Um, but he thought that that was a really unstable place to go. And he predicted in, in the early 1960s that this was a type of reselling that would one day be done by machines and would one day be completely automated because he didn't see how there was any human touch involved in just becoming the biggest and selling national brands at unlimited quantities. And, and really, you know, he had this idea it, that like an Amazon would be created. And he just saw that was not his game. He was not going to be the one to create this Amazon. He didn't want to create this Amazon to begin with. Um, he is kind of a folksy, uh, very human, decent person. Um, and so, yeah, how, what do I have to do? I have to shift out from underneath this behemoth. And, and so he noticed a few kind of things that, that kind of form the, uh, the we kind of gave him sniffed out the ways that he should be shifting um and and, and that was to, to to really humanize this chain and, and get down to um and focus on like individual um customer bases rather than kind of national homogeny and the the, the kind of formative trends in that process were one he noticed the gi bill was going to hit the third generation of vets returning from Vietnam and that being Korea and World War II before it. And the GI Bill guaranteed a returning vet the opportunity of a college education. And, and to him, a light bulb went off when he read a Wall Street Journal article about this. Uh, okay, all these people who couldn't previously afford college are going to go to college and they're going to get educated. And this doesn't mean they're going to be smarter, but they're going to get educated. And that means they're going to use big, fancy words, and they're going to want to flex their vocabulary, and they're going to want to eat differently when they flex that vocabulary. They're going to want to eat products that reflect the fact that they're educated now. 
And it's a very savvy insight, and he was totally right. Uh, he, this was even before the war in Vietnam totally escalated to its height. Um, but college education did become democratized, and even much more so afterwards uh, beyond the GI Bill. So that was one thing he noticed. The other thing he noticed was that international travel was was coming of age. The, the Boeing 747 had just come online, and he saw that as a turning point where air travel was going to become democratized. Air travel is this thing that it's like even hard to wrap our heads around now because it's, it's, we take it for granted. But at that time, people were not traveling internationally. Most Americans hadn't set foot on a plane yet. And he thought, well, the 747 is going to make going to Europe going overseas cheap and when that travel is a form of education cliche cliche but people are going to come back from that and they're going to want to eat differently in the same way these new college graduates are going to do that um and i can make a store for these people i can find you know it, it, it's the classic trader joe's overeducated, underpaid consumer um got cemented in his mind and that kind of the third observation just to round out what he saw was that uh, at the time, national TV uh, uh, operated some ungodly high, like 90% uh, uh, demographic fidelity, right? There was, everyone watched the same shows. I'm not totally sure about the percent there, but it was extremely high. And he just thought that wasn't going to hold. He thought people would want individual uh, entertainment options. And of course, the way food was sold back then and the way food still is sold is through advertising. And when you're advertising in a country with, you know, one or two entertainment options, the national brands become very dominant and, and, and customers can kind of like operate in lockstep. Okay, I, watch, I love Lucy. I see what's being advertised on that. I'll go buy the, that product. And, and he just thought this was all going to come crumbling down. And again, this was very prescient. It was way before the 500 channels of cable TV. Um, but he thought, you know what, there's going to be a lot of different advertising channels and people are going to want a lot of different options when that happens. Um, and so combining all three of those things uh, really were the, the, the decisive insights into a store and that became Trader Joe's. And what, what I love about that is that really explains kind of the feel like, you know, how Trader Joe's exists yeah. as a company, uh, you know, from, from an outsider, right? Like, like that's, you, you know, he's, he was selling to an individual. And what, what the, the other thing I want to get to, which I think is to me, the brilliant part of this, and you know, it's kind of, you use the example in the book about a guy who was uh, he was selling eggs and he had triple A extra large eggs and people weren't yeah. buying it because it wasn't a continuous product. Like sometimes he would have a lot, sometimes he wouldn't have any, and there may not be in the store. And as you know, we mentioned scarcity. People are, are afraid of scarcity in a store. You know, God forbid you're out of a certain thing of potato chips, right? But he used this to his advantage. And I think what I loved about this, and I grew up with Aldi. And when I, when I was introduced mm. to Trader Joe's, I noticed how similar the two stores, very different, but very similar. And the key part was all of mm -hmm. these, the, the, you know, kind of the acceleration and the perfection of private label. And to me, that along with, yes. you know, selling to a specific person, but also making really good or at least better than average 
uh, private label brands is what really defines a Trader Joe's for me. And, and mm-hmm. that, and that's, that's right. kind of, you know, what I love to, that, that's kind of what I think is the secret solution is, is, you know, that, that product as well. Well, so here's, here's the deal Like you can't make a private. So you're absolutely right that that's the secret sauce, but what you can't do is make that secret sauce without those first insights around education um, because so private labels has existed from the dawn of the grocery industry. In fact, when you think back to the general store, it was all private label kind of, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, and and it, even early grocery stores had private labels, they, but they were synonymous with generic and they were synonymous with kind of low like value. And the idea was that you stripped out uh, advertising costs and could, you know, and production costs and could offer a cheaper alternative to the, to the good mainstream brands. And what, he realized was that, you know, if I have this target consumer that I've kind of figured out and this demographic fidelity that I want to build around, then I can make private label products that cater to this customer's instincts. And that was, that's the real, that's like the magic of that secret sauce. It's that he understood who he was selling to and then went in a very Steve Jobsian way, built products that they didn't necessarily know they wanted, but he knew they would right. want. Yeah. So he, you know, he, 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 you know, invents almond butter as a consumer product because he, he realizes he can't compete against big chains in terms of peanut butter, but you know, I'm pretty sure that my customers will want this or, you know, one of the, he, he talks about, uh, um, finding this, what he considered the best tasting corn in America. And he realized that if he cans this and vintage dates it, he can market it to these overeducated consumers, like vintage dated canned corn, <laughs> um, and, and which sounds absurd on one level, but then you kind of like, oh yeah, you couple that with some marketing statements about how it's the best canned corn. And all of a sudden I'm kind of curious. And I was like, maybe I would want right. to buy it. You know, it's like raised in one field in Idaho, Idaho and, you know, every year he has to outbid the Japanese for this like magic corn. Um, and you can only get it at Trader right. Joe's. And, and you can see these different interlocking forces matter. And I think the, the other thing to say about Joe is he was really a humanist at heart. I say, I mean, I, I don't think Joe would ever say something like that because he's, he was an extremely modest guy and kind of an all shucks um, persona uh, put on top of like this razor, scary, sharp brain and memory. Um, so he would be sitting here correcting everything I said, uh, if he was, if he was around, uh, he sadly, he died earlier this year. But the the other thing he, he did is he was this humanist who, who paid people well and created a store that, uh, valued the people that valued kind of his employees and their own curiosity. So, uh, that has a material effect in that he, asked his buyers to go out and create new products. And instead of just having like a bunch of guys who sat around spreadsheets replenishing things, they were smart, paid well, and given the freedom to really dig into those supply chains. And, you know, I talked to some of them during the book and they, you know, they called it like guerrilla war on the supply chain of really like figuring out not just how to strip out costs, 
but how to build in new products and create new things. And I think that was, that was very, you know, it, it did cut the cynic in me down. <laughs> I mean, look, cookie butter, I think, is one of of one of uh, Trader Joe's greatest gifts to humanity. If you've never had it, it is <laughs> 10 times better. I mean, I won't buy it because uh, I'll eat it too much. It's amazing. Uh, it's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so I want to, you know, we could talk forever on Trader Joe's. I love the store. And, and learning about the history made me like it even more. And I will leave, I want to leave the audience with a couple things here. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of these stats. But Trader Joe's sells more per square foot than anyone except Apple, as in Apple Computers, and Tiffany's, the uh, the jewelry store. They um, when I the first thing that I always noticed when I first walked into Trader Joe's was the inc- the inordinately gigantic and and varied cheese section and wine section, and those are on purpose. I, we didn't. I don't think you explained cheese in the book, but wine at one point alcohol was their flagship. They sold. I think at one point uh, they sold. Um, uh, I forget the, the amount of alcohol, but they were the widest, widest assortment of uh, California wines in the world. Which it, this was in pre 1970s pre Judgment of Paris, and I think it petered out at 17 bottles. But he was way ahead of the curve on these things uh, in terms of wine, and he had a huge number of booze. I mean, like 84 different rums. I think I can't I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head. But he 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 essentially. At that time, you couldn't compete on price in California in booze. So he said, "You know what? I'm going to get. I'm just going to create a grocery store that has the most diverse offerings possible." Um, because he realized, and this again, Joe being kind of a brilliant guy, that uh, the alcoholic booze hounds and wine connoisseurs were ex- tailored to his his target demographic. They were the same people who really cared about. Uh, like health foods, they really cared about uh, edu- being flexing their educational muscle. Um, you know, the wine consumer was the health food consumer, was this curious traveler consumer. They were all one. And so he could offer uh, health food products and wine in the same store. And it, rather than being like what he calls schizophrenia, it would actually uh, attract people on the same radar beam. No, and, and and I love there's this there's a story in there where because he was so smart and because he went through all the laws, he was able to manipulate uh, a, a law on imported wine. And through that, he was able to sell wine at an incredibly low price. And at one point, Charles Shaw, his in-house brand, was accounted for 12% of all wine sold in California. I mean, you know, this yeah. is this is just a guy who was able to really, you know, in a Bill Belichickian fashion to take the rule book and really find out the loopholes and just use them to his advantage and the chain's advantage. And I just love that. I, I, I love hearing stories like that. Um, so this is, you know, there's plenty more where this came from. It's in the book. You got to check it out. Benjamin, thank you so much for taking more time out to talk to me about my favorite grocery chain, Trader Joe's.